Welcome to the Spectator's Books Podcast. I'm Sam Leith, literary editor of The Spectator, and this week we're going to be talking about a rather large topic whose anniversary is this year, which is the Reformation. I am joined today by Peter Marshall, the author of Heretics and Believers, A History of the English Reformation, and by Peter Stanford, two Peters I'm afraid, the author of a new biography of Martin Luther called Martin Luther, Catholic Dissident. I'd like to start with Peter Stanford, Peter, asking you, because we go back to the beginning, we all have this, I think, very sort of archetypal idea of, you know, the Reformation beginning when this crazed monk, or as it was, friar, nails his 95 theses to the door of a church in Wittenberg and the whole continent changes. It didn't start that quickly, did it? No, and I mean, obviously these are very good stories and it's a shame to ruin a good story, but first of all, he wasn't crazed and he was a friar, not a monk. And which you've got right. But also the, the, I mean, the idea of nailing doesn't work either, I'm afraid. So one of the amazing things about Martin Luther is there are very few other figures in the 16th century about whom so many volumes of, of correspondence, of letters, of tracts, or even, even accounts of what he said around his dinner table have been kept. And nowhere but nowhere in the 121 volumes of those is there a mention of him nailing anything to the door. Um, if people attach things to the door, then they use wax. Um, but I think the other thing to, uh, to bear in mind is that 95 theses, I mean, they weren't quite academic theses, which one would assume would be sort of 95 times 10,000 words, but they reach about three or four sentences long. So we're not talking a little petition on the door saying, we think Father should have a shorter sermon, sign your names underneath. We're talking about what would be a huge piece of wallpaper, really, to cover the whole door. So what he did was he wrote in anger his 95 theses and sent them to his local archbishop, who was a bit of a wet lettuce, and sent them on to Rome for comment. And the reason that it, it burned so much was, I mean, I think it's very important to remember that uh, Luther was a very obscure Augustinian friar. He wasn't one of the great sort of theologians of Europe. He was in an incredibly obscure university, newly founded university in Wittenberg, which was in the back of beyond in Germany. And as far as Rome was concerned, Germany was just somewhere to extract money from. It wasn't at all important. So how did, how did this thing create such a fuss? Why are we thinking about it now? Partly because, or partly because Luther's message chimed with lots of people, but also partly uh, this is the early, early days of the age of printing and the printing presses. So Luther gave his 95 theses to local printers, or perhaps didn't give them himself, but someone at his behest gave them, who then made crudely copied pictures, often boiled down, often with woodcuts by Lucas Cranach the Elder, who lived in the same town, Wittenberg, and around they circulated. Within months, we know that they're in Switzerland, they're in England, they're in France, they're in Rome. So off it goes. But as both of your books make clear, it doesn't come out of nowhere. I mean, Luther's... A lot of what Luther had said had been said before. Absolutely. I mean, there was uh, Hus before, yes. and then Erasmus was saying similar things yes. about indulgences, wasn't yes. he? Why did it somehow catch fire with Luther? I mean, you both probably have a bit of a view on that. Um, well, I think well, one of the things when it, of it not coming from anywhere with Luther, it came from within as well. I think sometimes people think Luther decided he was going to kind of lead a revolution, like a sort of early-day Che Guevara. But actually, it came out of his own angst and his own search for God, that he was, uh, he was a, an Augustinian friar, he was in the monastery, he was doing all the things that friars are meant to do, so going to confession endlessly, keeping the monastic hours, hoeing the leeks in the garden, thinking only pure thoughts, and still he felt that God was absent, which is when he started reading the Gospels and letters of St Paul, which is where the idea of justification from faith by faith alone comes from. So it, out, of, out of this internal struggle comes this great kind of wider struggle for Luther. And Peter, would you 
take that same line that it was actually Luther's personality in some sense that was what gave this impetus? Or? Yes, I think so. He's, I mean, he's clearly an extraordinary man, and uh, it's unfashionable nowadays to talk about great men, but if, if we have to, uh, I think he probably makes the, the cut. One of the things that strikes me about this story is the importance of reading it forwards rather than backwards. So when I'm talking to students about Luther, uh, I always insist that he's not a Protestant. He never called himself that. So he's not the first Protestant. He's a late medieval Catholic. And if we shift that frame of, of reference, I think we see how uninevitable, if that's a word, all of this process was. And in fact, the 95 theses that I absolutely agree with, Peter, I don't think they were nailed to any door. And if they were, that was an entirely unremarkable event. The door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg is just the university notice board. So theses were occasionally posted up there like a sort of lecture program uh, for the following week. But the theses themselves, although, uh, as Peter says quite rightly, the tone is angry, theologically don't say anything very dramatic. Orthodoxy, of course, is always in the eye of the beholder, but from a late medieval Catholic perspective, you could say are not particularly unorthodox or heretical and are rather similar to what uh, other thoughtful, informed Catholics at the time are saying. So the question of how this little local dispute becomes a worldwide revolution is, of course, a very challenging one. It's partly, although this is a rather traditional answer, I, I, I accept, uh, again, something Peter mentioned just now, it's the, the new or perhaps not quite so new technology of printing. I mean, while this little local quarrel is sort of running its course and the uh, Augustinians, Luther's order, are arguing with the Dominicans who are trying to bring the heresy charges against him and the Archbishop of Mainz, who's been sent these theses, can't really be bothered. He's got more important things to think about, so he sends them off to the theology faculty of the university, and it's all taking a long time to whirl through the processes. And in the meantime, they appear in print, they're widely circulated, they strike a chord with people who perhaps aren't primarily interested in these very technical theological issues about uh, indulgences and purgatory and grace, but see in them a righteous protest against corruption and wrongdoing with, frankly, quite a strong nationalist German anti-Italian element to them as well. And populist as well, which obviously is kind of interesting in our own times. It's that sense of the disenfranchised, I think. Absolutely. Um, I mean, obviously, a lot of people, most people were illiterate then, but the way that they were presented enabled them to be passed on by word of mouth. And I don't think people necessarily would read through all 95 or even get the gist of what he was saying in them, but they knew that he was against them being exploited by the church. And because we're talking about the period, the early days of a sort of capitalist money economy in Germany, where a lot of kind of poor rural people felt that they were being exploited. You know, in the past, they would have given the abbot a kind of sheep to use their land for a year. And now he was asking for money. And often he was an Italian who'd bought the living there and was trying to extract money from it. So there was this great sense of, of disenfranchisement. But I think the other political thing that was going on was the, the German princes themselves were feeling this jigsaw of states in the Holy Roman Empire. They saw in Luther, some of them saw in Luther, an opportunity to flex their muscles against the Pope. I mean, principally, and this may not have been his motivation. We're re it's really unclear what his motivation was, but this may have been part of it. It seems logical it's part of it. Elector Frederick of, of Saxony, who was actually a very traditional Catholic himself. He had a massive collection of relics, which, of course, Luther disapproved of. But he protected Luther all the way through. Uh, there was one moment when he almost, almost handed him over, but he, but he didn't. And in many ways, why did Luther survive and people like Jan Hus didn't? Why did, why did the Reformation happen in that sense? Partly because Luther lived. 
because the Catholic Church, its history at the time was to silence or to, or to kill people who disagreed with it. And actually, he managed to, in, in that extraordinary scene at the Diet of Worms, where they ask him to recant, I think they probably would have wanted to burn him anyway, but they asked him to recant. And I know these probably weren't quite his words, but it has such a wonderful echo through the centuries. Here I stand, I can do no other. And, you know, God, wouldn't it be wonderful if we had people in our, in our own sort of political establishment now who would say that? It's, a, it's an extraordinary phrase. Yes, there's, a, there's a, a dramatic contrast, which I think is in Luther's own mind, between his great predecessor in the 15th century, the Czech reformer Jan Hus, who is condemned and burned by the Council of Constance. And Luther goes to the great imperial diet at Worms with an imperial safe conduct. Like, like Hus, but Hus had had a safe a- conduct. <laughs> so never trust a cardinal. Well, it, 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 indeed, but perhaps in this, uh, on this occasion you could at least trust an, an emperor. I think a, a poignant question, maybe it's a provocative question, is what might have happened if Luther had been arrested, tried and executed after the Diet of Worms, and whether that would necessarily have been bad news for the Reformation as a movement or or for Protestantism. Luther's really important work, I think, is done by 1521. His great theological insights have... I see Peter frowning a bit, and probably rightly, well, but, but largely been, been laid down. And, and for much of the latter part of his life, he's an incredibly querulous and divisive presence in the developing Reformation world. And but he's also a nicer person. Sorry, sorry to sound really <laughs> fey about this, but, but one of the great things about well, one of the great things about Martin Luther surviving, so he, he survives in 1521, goes into the castle for, for 10 months, and then goes back to Wittenberg, where people have taken every witch idea of his and, and, and mixed them all up, and he brings some sort of order and what he does then and really for the rest of his life is and it it is really really important not to think of him as a protestant which is a word that he didn't like and was said of him he wasn't even a lutheran he never called himself a lutheran he he called himself an evangelical he saw himself very much as a catholic reformer he thought he was setting up a kind of model of a reformed catholic church and so he does all of these things like get married he believes that that, the priest should get married i mean it wasn't a great love match with katarina von bohr at first he felt he ought to get married because he'd said priests ought to get married and she was at one of a group of nuns who'd escaped from a convent to come to Wittenberg all the other ones were married off but she was so tricky about things and actually I thought about her the other day when Margaret uh, when uh, Theresa May kept describing herself as a bloody difficult woman I think Katharina von Bora was a bloody difficult woman so no one wanted to so Luther married her and then was actually extraordinarily happy the end of his life he's such a good advertisement for Catholic priests getting married so I think a lot of the things he did later in his life were and in a way that's why I call the book Catholic Dissident they were all sort of setting up a model for how Christianity might, or Catholic Christianity might, but even, run itself. There's a sense that he was, you know, when they kicked back at him, you know, he was a temperamentally someone who would pick, you know, you picked a fight with me. Well, you can see it both ways. You can see it that he wouldn't move, but also I think his courage is extraordinary in those moments. I think many other people, and people get very cross when I say this, but if you think about what Erasmus was doing at the time, when the going got tough, Erasmus went off to Baal for safety. Luther went to the Diet of Worms and stood there in front of people. Well, he's, he's incredibly bloody-minded, there's no yes, that's, doubt that's about That's another way of describing that. it. And he's clearly also energised by opposition, and I think you can see that at various stages of, of Luther's career, that it's the fact that, as he sees it, these, these self-evident necessary reforms are being rejected or resisted by people. And I'm not just talking about the Catholic hierarchy here, fellow reformers who were great friends, he falls out with very, very dramatically. Everyone. You know, he, he, he nurses hatreds over decades and, and, and decades, and particularly over the, the question which really I think is, although this is something that's quite difficult for modern people to understand, I mean, A, ex- 
explaining what the Eucharist is in the first place and, you know, why this matters and why, as one eminent historian once asked, people were prepared to burn each other in the 16th century over this very metaphysical question of what is or is not the nature of bread. But Luther is absolutely adamant on this. All these very sophisticated textual readings that are adopted by most of his fellow reformers, that we need to read the account of the Last Supper and Christ's injunction, do this in memory of me, this is my body, we need to read this symbolically. Luther is adamant that the word of Scripture is clear on this, it is Christ's body, and he will not budge on that question at all. Famously at the the summit meeting that is summoned by the Lutheran Prince Philip of Hesse, who's trying to sort out this quarrel at Marburg in 1529 to try and settle the debate over the Eucharist, Luther turns up, writes, Hocest corpus meum, this is my body and chalk on the table, metaphorically puts his feet up, the discussion is going nowhere. Is this, I mean, one of the difficulties we have that you sort of allude to is maybe we read it, you know, we're not scared of hell, so it's very hard to imagine ourselves into the minds of people whom this really was absolutely live, but also that the sort of separation, and you in the beginning of your book talk about saying, you know, religion wasn't separable, that we think now so habitually of a separation of church and state, which in some ways is a kind of legacy of the Reformation, that you know, sort of reading the Reformation the right way round is very difficult for us. Is that? I think that's right. I mean, I, I teach and study the history of religion, but I don't really believe that the history of religion is, is a thing because the meaning of that word religion changes its shape quite dramatically over, well, over hundreds and hundreds of, of years. And in a sense, it strikes me, although this is perhaps a, a grandiose claim, that what is really significant about the Reformation is that it gives birth to our modern concept of religion in the West. Concept of religion which then Europeans sort of impose on other belief systems uh, across the world, not terribly helpfully, over the past few hundred years. But certainly in medieval England, if you used the word religion or asked if somebody was religious, it was a quite specific question. It meant, uh, were they a monk or a friar? Those were the religious. And religion, what what was done in monasteries... Uh, The very fact that there wasn't actually a word for that abstract, concrete bundle of rituals, practices, beliefs, which we see as religion, I think tells us how deeply woven this is into all facets of life. This is water idea of telling a fish what water is. Indeed, absolutely. Certainly wouldn't recognise person of faith, as we all have to call ourselves now. You're person of faith. Yeah. Uh, But anyway. I suppose just very briefly, can we sketch out, because most of us now aren't familiar with us, of the seven sacraments which were so central to, to this whole question, which were the real key battlegrounds over the years between Luther and well, 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 Luther, Luther dumped five of them. Yes. So we, we've talked about, well, he, well, he dumped four and a half of them, let's be, let's be clear. I mean, he would have said five, but he, if he was here, he'd be arguing now. It, it, the, the thing about the Eucharist, it, and what, almost what is most important about it, so what Luther said is that each individual should read the Gospels for themselves, which is why he translated first the New Testament and then the Bible into German. He wanted people to read things and, and decide things for themselves. So his test, in a way, for anything that was claimed, papal authority, for instance, is, is it there in the... Did Jesus say it? Is, is there a scriptural source for it? And so he went through the, uh, the Gospels and he found a scriptural source for Eucharist, but there was a huge dis- debate about that, and for baptism, obviously incredibly important... And he, he fudged it a bit around confession, didn't he, really? He liked a confessor himself, but he, was, he didn't like the idea that, that the church could kind of wipe sins away and act in a godlike way. Um, but all the other, the other four sacraments, it wasn't that he didn't believe in marriage, he didn't think marriage was an important thing, but he believed that that wasn't a sacrament in that very specific sense of sacrament. 
Meanwhile, in England, the question of how many sacraments there are has been thoroughly fudged by Henry VIII, <laughs> yes. who in 1521, as, as people may know, is accorded the title uh, Defender of the Face, Fidei Defensor, for writing an assertio septem sacramentorum, a defence of the, the seven sacraments. Once he's broken with Rome, the question of are there seven sacraments and what do they mean is a very contested issue. At one point, there's a document that says, yes, there are seven, but puts them in two groups along the lines Peter is talking about, three which are clearly in the jargon of dominical institution, i.e. Christ himself has set them up, baptism, penance, and the Eucharist, and the other four which we should regard as sacraments, although they aren't quite so clearly established in, in, in Scripture. I mean, one of the things that, that strikes me about the, the debates of, of the Reformation, and I think part of the key to why they are so ferocious, is that, in fact, Western Christians in this period had kind of 98% of their theological DNA in, in common. They agreed about, well, most of them agreed about fundamental doctrinal issues. They pretty much agreed about the theology of baptism with the exception of the very adventurous, uh, radical reformers who were labelled with the hostile description Anabaptists, who everybody hated or everybody in power hated in, in this period. So it's the, it's the tyranny, really, of little differences. And I think the Eucharist really is at the heart of this, partly because it is such a clear injunction in at least three of the Gospels, I think I've got that right, that you know, Christ uses the words, do this in memory of me. So clearly this is the ritual core of Christianity from the mouth of the Saviour himself, and yet those four words, this is my body, the meaning of every one of those words is endlessly argued about over the course of the 16th century. Though initially, which, which seemed interesting to me politically, there, there was this thing that the priest got the blood and the laity got the, the body. Yes, and that's a cause of, of resentment among reformers, uh, had in fact been incredibly important to the person we were talking about just now, Jan Hus, and the bohemian followers of Hus in the 15th century, who uh, carried an embroidered chalice on their banners in war against the Catholic authorities because they felt they were being deprived of this fundamental right. If one was being very theological about it, you could say from a Catholic perspective it doesn't really matter. There's this uh, idea which is called concomitance, meaning that the whole Christ is present under each of the two forms. So if lay people are only receiving the bread, they're not really being shortchanged. But that's, of course, a pretty hard idea for ordinary and, people and, to and, grasp. And we've changed our mind about that. Well, oh, eventually. Oh, oh, it took us yeah. to 1969 to do it, so the Catholic Church just doesn't move rather slowly. Yeah. But I think I think we, we're talking about kind of small details almost. But I think the key thing almost is, and, it, and you're right in the in, in the kind of smallness of it. If you encourage people to read the Gospels and make what you will of them, make up your own mind. It's your conscience, your liberty, which obviously has profound importance going forward. But if you say that every single one, if the three of us here sat and read a, a Gospel passage, we would all disagree in some measure about it. So in a sense, once you take away papal authority to say this you know this is what it means it's like you know even in my catholic parish now you'll still get a notice on the notice board saying you know next week father michael will gather to tell you all what matthew's gospel says and you think well i could probably read it for myself and work it out so that idea that someone tells you the expert as michael gove might call them tells you what it says once that's gone you just get this extraordinary kind of fragmentation this is one of the things i really want to ask you about because you know the question of how the reformation came to england as you say henry initially greeted Luther's ideas with a very cold eye indeed. And then he appears to have changed his mind. But your argument, if I'm paraphrasing right, is that actually, perversely, it might seem, in attempting to kind of consolidate religious power and take it away from Rome and make himself the defender of the faith and the you know, head of the church, 
Henry in the long run actually kind of weakened himself and his authority institutionally. Is that right? Absolutely. And I think just picking up Peter's last point, it's, it's absolutely right that once vernacular scripture is being read by people right across Europe, the result is that they're going to argue about it. Actually, I don't think that really any of the mainstream Protestant reformers, Luther or his disciples in England, people like Tyndale, who of course produces the first English translation from the original languages of the Bible, really believed in a sort of modern liberal sense that people should be allowed to make up their own mind what the Bible meant. They simply thought the Catholic Church had perversely misinterpreted scripture. But it was a an unintended consequence because obviously I think if, if Luther was around now and looked at human rights legislation or whatever he'd be rather horrified and people said that's <laughs> your fault you, I don't, it's, it, you're absolutely right it clearly isn't what they intended but I think it, it was a sort of it's a consequence in some way absolutely and, and in a sense what Henry VIII has to do when he's justifying first of all his ditching an extremely popular long-standing queen so he can marry Anne Boleyn who to put it frankly is not popular anywhere in, in the country and following from that justifying breaking the centuries-old link with, with Rome. Uh, you know, this is a kind of uber-Brexit we're talking about here, which involves unpicking of all kinds of institutional and cultural and emotional relationships. Uh, it's a huge sell, and it requires a huge propaganda effort. And in some ways, that propaganda effort is extraordinarily successful. The printing press that we were just talking about, Henry and particularly Thomas Cromwell, who I think does actually deserve a sort of central place in uh, bringing about this revolutionary change, this massive effort of persuasion through print and through pulpit, and yet the very process of persuasion has its own kind of countercurrent built into it. If you are having to make an argument in the public sphere, you're opening up the possibility that that argument can be questioned. You know, the great strength of medieval Christianity in that period where the word and the concept religion didn't almost, almost didn't exist was that it was simply taken for granted. It was part of the warp and weft of life. It didn't really need to justify itself because it was simply lived by people. So once religion, and this is putting it a little bit too simply, but once it becomes much more a doctrinal idea, even for quite ordinary people than it had been centuries earlier, it opens itself up to disputation, debate and fragmentation. Now, in my own kind of area of sort of special interest in sort of literature, there does seem to be an argument made by a lot of critics, and I, you know, people like Stephen Greenblatt and in a kind of extreme case Harold Bloom, that without the rise of Puritanism and the various sort of post-Reformation religious ideas, the sort of interiority that people had, there's a sort of early modern development of the idea of an inner self that goes along with post-Reformation doctrine. How much do you buy that idea? That, you know, what's made possible, the novel, the, the sort of in, particular sort of inwardness that's characteristic of modern literature and Shakespeare's characterization and so on, that you know, human beings as they are now weren't constituted as subjects. I, th- I think, like most caricatures, it's about probably 40% true. <laughs> and certainly the familiar idea that Protestantism is much more the religion of the book than Catholicism is, though ironically English Catholicism in its underground persecuted state becomes very much a religion of, of books and the book. That holds up. It does seem that literacy levels are higher in Protestant Europe in the 16th century than they are in, in many Catholic ones. But the idea that Catholicism is all kind of external and ritual and Protestantism is you know internal and introspective 
perspective. I mean, tell that to Teresa Ravala or Ignatius Loyola. <laughs> and, and, it, and it's complete. I mean, in Luther's case, this is completely wrong. So when he's going through his huge spiritual struggle in his Augustinian cloister, von Staupitz, his, his sort of mentor, his confessor, says, try reading a few of these medieval mystics. And so he reads some of them and, and just thinks they're all junk, really. He's really not interested in that. So that doesn't do it for him. So, I mean, Lutheranism particularly really has no kind of internal spiritual... I'm sure a Lutheran will be listening to this and say, I've got it wrong, but generally just doesn't, doesn't go down that route. And Catholicism, in many ways, certainly modern Catholicism, is all about that in lots of sense. Yes, you have this framework of rules and regulations, which virtually every single Catholic takes no notice of whatsoever. And what keeps them as, as a Catholic, and obviously I'm generalising now from personal experience, but is that kind of... The, 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 you know, people talk about the liturgy and the kind of ritual and, and those things. I, I, I think the, the theory has got it the wrong way around, really. One of the things I think i perhaps add to that is that I'm not sure we have it the right way around if we think of Catholicism being what is left after the Reformation of what had been there before. I mean, it seems to me that what the the Reformation, using it in its broadest sense, does is it really remakes the nature of Christianity across Europe. And that's true, actually, of the Protestant Reformation, and indeed the Catholic Reformation, what used to be called the the Counter-Reformation. I mean, there is no part of Western Christianity that does not undergo a kind of convulsion. And of course, there are important continuities, particularly in the Catholic parts of Europe. There are still seven sacraments, there are still priests, people are still not allowed to have the chalice until 1969. But nonetheless, the world is just different. I mean, I sometimes think that it actually makes help to th- it makes sense to think about a medieval Catholicism and a post-medieval Roman Catholicism. Catholicism becomes a denomination. You're a Catholic after the mid-16th century because you know you are not a Lutheran or some other kind of heretic. And that wasn't really there. There were, of course, you know, despised others in the medieval world, you know, Jews and Muslims, but the Muslims were quite far away. The Jews were uh, not present in large parts of Europe, certainly not in in England. So that self-consciousness of religious identity, which comes out of both the experience of reform and the experience of division, I think is something that Christians across Europe have in common for good or ill, as a result and, of the and indeed, And indeed, one of the fascinating things about Luther is we're now in the, we're, as we said at the beginning, we're in the 500th anniversary of him not nailing things on a door. The celebrations are being jointly organised by, obviously, the World Lutheran Federation, but also by the Vatican. So now what they say is, in general terms, we agree on most things. Um, Pope Benedict XVI said the question of justification is we, we can move that off the table. We, we found a, an agreeable formula on that. So, and if you look at some of the, the, you know, some of the ideas that Luther came out with, you know, liturgy in the vernacular, the bread and the wine given to everybody, he talked about, uh, he talked, obviously believed in a married priesthood. We had Pope Francis only a few weeks ago talking about a married priesthood. But, but the key thing that struck me most, and again, one of the reasons why I call, call the book Catholic Dissidents, and I do really feel that if Luther was reborn today into the Catholic Church and had a look round, he'd, he'd be a bit tricky, he'd be a bit sort of lippy, as you can imagine, because he was a kind of angry chap. But I think he'd largely be relatively happy. So the Second Vatican Council, the great reforming movement of the Catholic Church, 1962 to 1965, Lumen Gentium, the constitution of the Church in the modern world, sounding very Catholic. Uh, but the key phrase in that was the priesthood of all baptised believers. We are all priests now, the Catholic Church t- tells us, doesn't quite treat us that way. And of course, Luther says that in 1522. So, in a sense, this is a circle. They've actually come round together. It's not, it's not a great divergence. So, would you say we can declare this Reformation over? 
Oh, oh goodness. Well, I think anybody who came back from the 16th century and, and looked in the churches of the denomination that bears their name would be, the would be abs- <laughs> well, they would wonder where the people are for, for a start. And they, would be, they would almost certainly be absolutely horrified by, by the, what they would, they would find. I mean, modern ecumenism is a little bit really ab- above my pay grade, so I probably shouldn't sort of wade in there. But I sometimes worry that when the theologians sort of, you know, look at the doctrinal questions and then produce a, a statement on justification, as I think happened back in 1995, you know, so it was all a terrible misunderstanding. That really misses the point of what religion is for most people, which is not about ab- abstruse, dull doctrines, but is about lived experience and identity. So, in fact, remembering the Reformation and being forced to reflect on these questions, I think, is an important part of the ecumenical endeavour. So the historian in me says the wrong way to go around it is to say, oh, it was all a terrible mistake, and, you know, we're not like those terrible people in, in the past. It involves recognising those hurts, taking the unreasonable past seriously and the unreasonable people of the past and, and their demands, um, and holding a kind of mirror up to ourselves. And, in fact, things that we're obsessed about will undoubtedly seem bizarre and inexplicable to people a few hundred years in the future. Peter and Peter, thank you very much indeed. And in this week's magazine, the lead review is Jonathan Keats writing about fascinating new biography of Hans Sloane, the eccentric collector whose collection formed the basis of the British Museum. Jonathan Mirsky, meanwhile, discusses the history and sad destruction of Palmyra. John McEwen looks at the grand shooting lodges of the Highlands. Alex Burghardt writes about a new biography of the original M. Peter Carty looks at the story of the Spanish flu, what he calls a forgotten epidemic, and Jane Ridley learns what it was that Queen Victoria ate. Answer almost everything very quickly, and that was why she was so fat. In fiction, Susie Fay reviews Colm Tobin's amazing new retelling of the Clytemnestra story, and Peter Bradshaw looks at David Sedaris's masterly diaries. And we have a special subscription offer to listeners of this podcast. You can now subscribe to The Spectator for 12 issues for £12 and a Spectator Moleskin notebook thrown in for free. That's spectator.co.uk forward slash pod offer.